You know, I think we're the only show that plays the Rolling Stones in this station. You are listening to the Drew Marshall Show. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, we are streaming live at drewmarshall.ca. We're also live right here on Joy 1250 in Southern Ontario. Up next on our death show, this still sounds weird saying that, is Dr. Nahid Dasani. He's um, palliative care and family physician at Inner City Health Associates. You know what? I don't want to go through your bio because it's just there's too much fancy stuff there that I actually <laughs> don't care about. But the thing I care about a lot, and one of the reasons I kind of twigged on your name is because, well, first of all, the folks at Bethel Hospice gave you six thumbs up. Oh, neat. So I thought Thank that was you. kind of a good endorsement. <laughs> and then uh, somebody said, yeah, he works with palliative care with the homeless. And that blew my brain. And, I, and then I was ashamed that it blew my brain because I thought, why have I never thought of that before? It just doesn't dawn on me at all. Right. So first of all, what is... What do you do? Like, what's the palliative care for the homeless thing? You, I, I can't even fathom how, what the logistics are of something yeah. like that. Because when someone is in the system, you can understand how palliative care uh, would unfold. Yeah. But when they're homeless, well, how does that happen? Yeah, and being connected to the system is a big part of accessing palliative care services. I think at the baseline, um, the health status of homeless and vulnerably housed people in cities like Toronto and North America and Europe um, is actually really poor. Any guesses on what a, the life expectancy of a homeless person is in, the, in a city like Toronto? Like once from once they become homeless yeah, to Yeah, say death? someone's been homeless since like their 20s, you know, for 10, 15 years. Any guesses? I know, because you told me already. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just cheating. Right? I know, that's why I'm Well, what, what is it? So research shows it's 34 to 47 years old. Um, mortality rates are 2.3 to 4 times higher than, than the average Canadian baseline. Um, the homeless, unfortunately, have uh, comorbid diagnoses rates that are much higher. Hep- hepatitis C, 28 times higher. Heart disease, 5 times higher. Um, cancer, 4 times higher. And uh, unfortunately, studies show that they're dying in ERs and in hospitals. And 90% of Canadians want to die at home. Um, and homeless and vulnerably housed people are not that different. It's just home might mean something totally different. So at baseline, the health status of this population is really, really poor. So they're sick. They're symptomatic. They have pain. They have nausea. They're socially isolated. And so quality of life when they're facing a life-limiting illness is really, really important. How do you find out that someone needs palliative care? Obviously, they get to the point where somebody in... Let's let's say it's okay. Th- so they've got to be connected to the system some way, right? What and I think the minimalist—that's right. not even the right word—but you know the easiest way for them to connect into the system would be the, a shelter, right? That's right. Yeah. So shelter notices that John is coughing his face off, or right. I don't know, whatever limp. You know, they go something's wrong with this guy, right? And then they have to convince the person mm-hmm. to to be checked out because I would imagine a lot of them are like nah thanks uh, no thanks I'm Mm -hmm. out of here we're really lucky Uh, I work with a group of over 60 physicians in the city uh, with inner city health associates we're a group of family doctors internists psychiatrists who work within the shelter and street system um, providing health care for homeless and vulnerably housed people at baseline and often we receive uh, uh, referrals or learn about folks that way but what we've come to learn is it's really the word on the street it's the local social worker who's working with a, a not-for-profit. It's um, it's the hospitals. Um, it's um, even homeless people themselves will come to us and say we have a, a a friend who is facing cancer or or heart or heart failure. Can you come see them because we think they're sick? And of course we have to go into the notes and get a better understanding of what's going on. But but we're really getting to know about these people through from a 
grassroots perspective right on the ground in the trenches. Why do you care so much? Because you seem like a pretty passionate dude, and yet you're probably ridiculously busy, (laughs) um, you know, trying to impress women. (laughs) 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 Uh, No, but, you you know, there's only so much, there's so many hours in the day. Yeah. There's only so much time, and there's only so many things you can care about. Yeah. Why this? Yeah, I think think it really comes down to the story of of Terry, and Terry's not his real name, but it was a a gentleman when I was doing my um, inner city residency at St. Michael's Hospital in the University of Toronto. As a first year resident, I I came to learn about this this gentleman who uh, had had a neck cancer and was admitted to uh, one of the shelters I was working at in pain crisis. He had schizophrenia schizophrenia and a history of substance use and he had a lot of pain. He had a fungating like big tumor on his face when I met him and he had bounced from ER to ER, walk-in clinic to walk-in clinic, um, healthcare facility to healthcare facility seeking the, the kind of pain control that you and I would so easily get if we needed it. And had but that because cancer. he had a drug history they were leery about giving him stuff? And I don't blame some of the healthcare providers that interacted with him. They didn't know him. There wasn't that longitudinal connection. Yeah. So he fell through the cracks and ended up in our shelter and didn't trust me at all. It took like several days to build a relationship with him. Went home one night being really excited about the fact that, you know, he's going to take this pain regimen that I've recommended for him. I got to the shelter the next day. I couldn't find him in his room. I couldn't find him in the calf. And one of his friends came up to me and said, Doc, um, what are you doing? I'm, I said, I'm looking for Terry. Where is he? And he said, Doc, you didn't hear? He, he, Terry, uh, Terry died last night. Terry, Terry died. And I said, what happened? And he said, well, he came into our room. He was crying. He said he was in pain and nobody cared about him. And I said, what? And I later learned that he had died on a combination of alcohol, opioids, and benzodiazepines. So he couldn't handle the pain and plus the mental health plus the his body would be uh, pretty uh, you'd need a lot of stuff to get jacked up and and uh, and desensitized. And so that combination of all that stuff and being passed around by the system. Absolutely. Unfortunately, the stigma of uh, years of isolation, mental illness, and homelessness um, rendered Terry in a position where he was not able to connect with the system. Tell me about his funeral. So his funeral um, actually um, happened, uh, didn't happen. To be honest, um, I'd like to tell you that there was like a, a great, you know, uh, force there at play that organized the funeral for him. You may know about the St. Michael's Memorial in Toronto, where um, anonymous people die every week and are memorialized as John Doe's and Jane Smith. And it was this that led me. It was Terry's story. It was the fact that we were um, memorializing people. We didn't even know their stories or their names. And it led me. T- I couldn't sleep. I was just stuck on this idea, this concept that there were people falling through the cracks. And I looked to like the academic literature and there were only only 36 articles on this topic um, in the world. And like in medicine, there's, there's there's very few topics with just 36 articles in them, mostly saying we need to do more. And so, you know, this kind of grew in me. And then I did a palliative medicine residency at the University of Toronto, and I worked in a lot of GTA hospitals, and I saw maybe one or two homeless and vulnerably housed people my entire residency. So I knew they were there. But I wasn't seeing them in hospitals. So there was a disconnect. So something had to be done. Okay, this is where I get on my high horse for a second, if you don't mind. For sure. This is so rare. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It is my firm belief that the, uh, the, uh, the great shoulder of blame in all of this are the God people. If anybody should be doing something about this. If anybody should be walking with those that are close to death who are nothing to the rest of society, the ones who are the our lepers, it should be the God people. 
So what I'm trying to say is, if you're a God person and you uh, you think you agree with me, then first of all, what can God people do about this? And, and look, t- normal people should be able to do something about this too. I'm just kind of trying to heap guilt on God people, especially the Catholics, because you know they like guilt. I'm kidding, folks. You can send your hate mail to Tim the Tool, care of the Drew Marshall Show. What can we do? If, you, if we are God people and we hear this and it aches and it hurts and we realize that that until we love the least of these, especially Jesus people, because yeah. that's what this this whole Jesus thing is supposed to be about. Yeah. It's about loving the least of these. Right. And my goodness, these folks are the least of these. So what can we do? So interestingly, what we know about this population research is as they start to approach end of life, as they get sicker, they turn to spirituality a lot more. Not necessarily uh, religion, but spirituality in a sense of starting to not feel so alone because they've been isolated and traumatized for so long. We're really grateful to have amazing partners in the city. The city-run shelters have been very supportive. The organizations in the city, and I don't want to name them all, but, you know, a few, the Good Shepherd, the Salvation Army, Fred Victor have been excellent partners. And we've seen, you know, whether, you know, organizations are focused around spirituality or not, there's been a huge focus. But when people um, ask me, what can I do? I'd love to tell you, you know, advocate for more funding for hospice for the the palliative uh, for homeless and lonely house people um, advocate for funding like programs like ours in your local city hold on advocate bores the snot out of exactly. me that word that, first of all I don't I don't it's like someone says I'm an engineer I don't yeah. know what that means yeah yeah how do I advocate well I mean there's the classic letter writing um, tweeting your MP getting politicians involved there's helping your grassroots organizations like some of the ones I named um, um, going to the city your local city and saying homelessness is a real problem and I'd like to talk about these sort of downstream issues. But if you really want to make change to this issue, end homelessness. This is a story, this is a downstream consequence of a life of poverty and homelessness. And we have solutions. Yeah, and let me go right back to picking on the the God people. God people, now we're talking city stuff here, God people have big God buildings that are heated and there's a lot of space and they're friggin' empty all week long. (laughs) Just saying. Just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah. yeah. And there's a lot of great opportunities for uh, improvement projects like that. Um, The idea of actually building a hospice or a facility with beds. Absolutely. But I I tell people, you want to end this problem? You want to stop stories like Terry and life expectancies that are 34 to 47 Mm -hmm. years old? End poverty and end homelessness. We have solutions. Housing First has been studied right here in Canada. I don't know if you've heard of the At Home Study, uh, Shea Soa Demonstration Project. It was a four-year randomized controlled trial. It was over $100 million um, uh, by the Mental Health Commission of Canada to study Housing First as a treatment for homelessness for those with mental illness. And the findings were amazing. Uh, People um, did better. They felt better. Their moods were better. They there was less crime. Um, uh, people visited the ER a lot less. So we have solutions. And Medicine Hat is actually our first major center in Canada to eradicate, Hat? eradicate homelessness. I mean, look Medicine it up. Hat. Medicine Hat. That's actually true. Yeah, <laughs> totally, absolutely. So housing first is a concept where you give someone a home. And then you give them the services within that home rather than what we currently do is our best practice, making people jump through hoops. You got to do this. You got to do that. You got to do that. And then you get a home. And for some reason, having a roof over your head at the start just makes the rest a lot easier. It actually makes a lot of sense when you think about it. Yeah. What's going through your brain, Linda? Oh, lots. (laughs) (laughs) We were chatting. uh, We were chatting before the interview about... uh, you had said that you were interested in, in hosting a death cafe. Yeah. 
Can you tell us more about why you think that would that would be helpful? Yeah, I mean, what we know about this population is they, they do live life on the edge, right? Um, you talk to some, go to the shelters, go to the streets. Every homeless or vulnerable house person has known someone who passed away recently. So they live life on the edge. And I mean, studies show that this population really is concerned about what happens with their remains because they've seen so many of their friends anonymized at death. and they uh, anonymized. anonymized, what a great word. I mean, it's a sucky word, but... Yeah. And it's really, it's tragic, right? And so what we're thinking moving forward is that, that these folks, they want to talk about this. Like, uh, people often ask, like, how do people react when you say you're a, a palliative care, quality of life, supportive team for the homeless? They're pretty, they're pretty open and they want to chat about it, but they want to talk. And I think what was really great about your segment was the concept of death cafes and the idea that I think a conversation about how do the social determinants of health play into an end-of-life journey when you don't have food for sure. When you don't necessarily have water to take the pills that your doctors have provided uh, to prescribe for you, um, you that kind that? of thing. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, there's just a few concepts that really come to mind. I want to ask you uh, our two pub crawl questions while you're here because sure. you, you've got to go and catch a flight. <laughs> um, I don't know why it sounded like Thurston Howell there from the. <laughs> lovely, yeah. Yes, lovely. Uh, are you afraid of death or dying? Do you think how you feel about death affects how you grieve for others? This is one of the topics we'll chat about with Carla Collins and uh, uh, Linda Stewart here on the pub crawl in just a little bit. Would you like to be cremated or buried? And buried, buried or buried? What do you say? You're a doctor. It's got to be right. Um, <laughs> I think it's really about personal oh, preference. Come on. <laughs> okay, cremated or buried in casket, would you like a traditional funeral? Or would you rather use the services of IWantAFunFuneral.com? True story. Some feel that death is a taboo subject and still yeah. prefer the black clothes and mourning the religious rituals and cultural traditions, while others would prefer to have a party, hire a comedian, have balloons and booze, and perhaps take the body golfing one last time. But maybe both are still just different ways to sterilize death. Most of us do whatever we can to push grief away. Why are we afraid? So, he, and here's the, the the culmination: two great fears. We are afraid of the disenfranchised. We are afraid of the homeless, mm-hmm. and we are afraid of death. Mm-hmm. So, when the homeless die, dude, I'm out. Mm-hmm. It's stigma upon stigma. Yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. So, let's just talk about the the being afraid of death. And as a palliative care doctor. You know, you guys are trained to drag us back from death, drag us back from death. And I think you even said to me on the phone, we were talking about one of the big societal issues that are out there. Like, look, I'm trained to, to help people live and to, and to, mm-hmm. to be an answer to mm-hmm. the problem of death. Mm-hmm. Now, we just spoke to someone earlier in the show. He's like, well, hold on. Death is a problem? Death is not a problem. Right. But you're a doctor. Death is a problem. Yeah. I think... Um, uh, we, I think I just asked you 37 questions. Yeah. So just my emotional reactions, at, you know, from a medicine, healthcare perspective, we, re- we really celebrate the beginning of life, don't we? Mm. And uh, we somehow stigmatize the end, but they're both natural processes. The only thing about the end, um, I guess the beginning can be tumultuous too, but the end tends to be... Uh, 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 focused on fears around pain, around being alone, around sadness, and so and, and no more. Yeah, and because if you're not a faith person, right? And then people say, "Well, when I was at, sorry, I interrupted you. No. When I was at the death cafe, Linda, one of the guys there I said, "Why are you here?" And he said, "I'm here because I'm I'm afraid of dying." Right. And and I said, "Oh, we mean the pain and the process?" No, just dying. I'm right. afraid. And and we talked about the fact that. That's uh, those who are um, atheists would right. uh, would say, well, that's the reason religion got made up is right. because we are so freaked out about right. uh, there being nothing after death that we came up with religion, so there's something after death. Right. 
Right. It's the ultimate screwing with the mind thing, yeah, right? Yeah. There is nothingness afterwards, po- possibly. Right. That's got to be where the fear comes from. Absolutely. But it's also around having pain and having shortness of breath and being confused and having but delirium. But you can drug the snot out of somebody and they, don't, they won't know that. Right. But it's also the experience of going through that and what that does to family members and losing connection with your intellect and your consciousness. This is what Canadians are really scared about. Right. And I know there's a lot of discussions about end of life and what we can do at end of life. But really, I mean... Um, you know, uh, palliative care is not about um, death and dying or end of life. It's about it's about living well. It's about quality of life. Um, and, and I think we all have a time expiry date. And when that date comes, um, we go. And whatever we believe, that's where we end up. But in, on the process, we don't have to suffer necessarily as much as we probably, the stigma kind of carries along with it. Okay, I've been around death a lot. Linda's been around it. You've been around it. For those who haven't been around it, what are the misnomers or mistakes or social retarded things that we do when it comes to um, to either uh, helping someone grieve or being part of a palliative care you know situation what do normal because we're not normal the three of us we've yeah. had so much death uh, stuff in our lives what how do normal people botch this up the the end of life process yeah. um, so uh, I have to say from my perspective is when when uh, a supportive or palliative care team gets involved um, there is a stigma attached to that and they turn it away they're like no you're the end of life you're 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 coming with the black cloak I don't, cloak I don't want that right M- meanwhile the word palliative in Latin means to comfort and really what you're doing is you're turning away an approach to your life that actually um, in, in multiple studies have now been shown to make people feel better, uh, make them function better, make them mentally feel better. And we now have two randomized controlled trials showing that people actually live longer. So patients with life-limiting illness that actually approach their life-limiting illness with a supportive or palliative care team lived longer, not days or weeks, months longer. Um, and that's opposed to like chemotherapy for example. So that's that that first impression, that first connection is so important and openness to it. Mm. Um, and I, that's where I think people kind of um, uh, fall, uh, lose it. Um, yeah. I find it just uh, overwhelmingly sad that for a lot of these people, the time when they're receiving the most support and love and caring is at the very end. Yeah. And, and if they had received that Potentially earlier, yeah. in in some form You're or another, about homeless? yeah, right. yeah, that it could yeah. have really it could have really changed changed the course of their life so and that, the quality of their life. But that's what you are saying earlier is it, the issue is not palliative care for the homeless. The issue is homelessness. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, for sure. And I think at, at these downstream narratives and stories, once we talk about folks like Terry, it tells us about how we could have approached the people around us with more compassion during their life, hmm. and why why that's important for the next time we interact with someone like Terry. Okay, since you are not here for the pub crawl, I keep mentioning that because I am bitter. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Let me just run the last question by you. Should death be part of the primary school curriculum? What is the right age to begin preparing children for death? Now, obviously, you can't pinpoint a specific age, and that's where you get into trouble with the sex ed curriculum that's out there these days and people chucking a wobbly, and we all have our different uh, opinions and morals and beliefs and codes and tribal conditionings that would uh, trigger different responses from different people. So, But we have a sex ed curriculum. We don't have a death curriculum. Right. 
Yeah. I'm a big fan of upstream education. Um, you keep talking about this stream, man. Yeah, upstream, yeah, downstream. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, really, when you look at uh, a person's life trajectory, right, with interventions um, earlier on, and particularly for the homeless, for example, the social determinants, intervening on poverty, housing, food security, um, can actually have huge impacts on their health outcomes. So um, that's what I'm referring to is this sort of mm. concept of this, yep. of this river downstream and upstream. And um, there's this big, the big theme of the year, if you went to all the palliative care conferences which are a good time by the way um, <laughs> yeah, exactly it's all about quality of life there um, uh, is the concept of palliative care as public health this is not um, uh, a, just a specialty of medicine. This is not a building. This is not a place. It's an approach, and it's a public health issue. This is why I love death cafes, because it's getting people to have those conversations. But I think education around death and dying at home uh, early for kids is really, really important. And we see this when we have, unfortunately, young um, uh, men and women die in our care. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, But that's it. Every time I've heard about the subject of death being brought up in primary schools, it's when somebody dies. Right. It's not part of the curriculum. And one has to wonder, from a public health perspective, if we actually were providing that education in our school system, would attitudes around death be different? Um, would the stigmas change? Would people's uh, uh, feelings about it be different? Would people be more open to yeah. accessing palliative care later on? Um, even question the medical treatments that they're being offered? Um, and what are the side effects? And what are the harmful side effects? Uh, you know, I think people would be more open and people, it would be a more fruitful conversation. Yeah, we sterilize death. Yeah. We avoid it. We, we, we're not good at it. And I wonder if that's a Western thing, a North American thing, um, uh, because other cultures, you know, the old are with them. Right. We package them away. Yeah. Um, and, and death is, is much more of a, of a um, conversation throughout one's life as right. opposed to just the end of life. Absolutely. So Totally. Oh, that was the fastest interview we've had today. <laughs> so good. I really appreciate you coming you. all the way Thanks down Thanks for having here. me. I really appreciate it. Um, once again, uh, this gentleman's name is Dr. Nahid Dasani. He won't be here for the pub crawl. <laughs> Four times I've said it. If you want to kind of creep on him or get in touch with him, his uh, Twitter feed is uh, Nahid D. So N-A-H-E-E-D. D and I would suggest uh, connecting with this guy. Um, fantastic communicator! You really are a great communicator. Thank you, wow. you are too. Oh, stop! <laughs> uh, keep going. Founder of Peach Palliative Education and Care for the Homeless. Uh, thank you, and I, I you. look forward to chatting again. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right, short break on our show. When we come back, it's the Pub Crawl without Doctor Nahid Dasani. Stay with us. Brother, I'm 